You think I'm preaching too hard? You have lost your mind. My message this morning is entitled, Male and Female Created He Them, obviously drawn from Genesis 1, verse 27. I scheduled this message many months ago, titled it, and, and put it on the calendar. I, I say that because at any given moment, with any given developments, it can appear that a message has been scheduled in response to this or to that. Sometimes that's actually called for, but it, in, in this case, it's just that in God's providence, certain issues and questions in public lined up as I was committed to preach this message, and I'm even more committed to preach this message. When we think about the world, one of the responsibilities we bear, and it's inescapable just to being human, is trying to figure out the world around us, big questions. What does the world mean? How are we to live? How should we see and understand the world? How do we understand our place, ourselves, and where we stand in the world? We have to ask questions. What is the meaning even of our bodies? What is the meaning of our relatedness? Fundamental questions that will change everything immediately impinge on us. Is there a creator God who's responsible for all of this? And to whose glory all of this was made, including ourselves and including our maleness and our femaleness and all that goes with that, is there a creator God who thus gives all of this meaning? Or are we just cosmic accidents left to figure all this out and make some sense of it by ourselves? Fundamental questions, what actually does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What, what does it mean to be made male or female? Eventually, other questions impinge. What does it mean to be sexual? What is marriage? How is it to be constituted? What is the family? How is it to be defined? Eventually, what is a church? And how would marriage and family, society, and church be rightly ordered. The questions loom a lot larger now. It's, it's good for us to just remember the fact that we have to think about things and answer questions that were not open questions for millennia. And that basically includes in the Christian church. The, uh, the questions that loom large now have a specific intellectual and cultural context. A great intellectual shift that has taken place in the larger society around us and intellectual changes, moral, cultural, political, and other changes that are now coming quite swiftly in their wake. The project of the modern age is defined by the modern age as a project of liberation. The idea behind this is that all claims about creation or ontological order, all claims about natural law, all claims about fixed structures and truths are just a disguised form of oppression. 
Those who are committed to this liberation project honestly and straightforwardly believe that they are serving the cause of humanity, humanity defined in human terms. They are liberating a humanity bound in various forms of oppression from all of this oppression. How recent is all of this? Well, when it comes to the project that the modern age defines as the liberation of women, you're basically talking about just the course of slightly over a century. But you're really talking in the controversies that we have now, in the white-hot heat of the contemporary moment, you're really talking about developments that date back to the second half of the 20th century. In the late 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century, we saw the rise of what was called first wave feminism. And first wave feminism, as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and, and others, the, their main point was often pressed in the terms of the equality of women. In fact, uh, calls for an equality act for women go all the way back to the to the 19th century in the period after the Civil War. The main demand made at the time was female suffrage, the right the women, the, the fact that women should have the right to vote. And of course, that was won in the early 20th century. But then second wave feminism came, especially in the wake of World War II, and second wave feminism was, was quite different. It was, it, it was more powerful in the sense that it called for far deeper changes in society. That second wave feminism represented an explicit repudiation of the structures the human beings had known for a very long time. Take Betty Friedan, perhaps one of the most famous of the second wave feminists, who referred to the family and, and, and the home with a mother and a father and their children in the home and uh, the, the father having a primary responsibility in the vocational world outside the home, and a, a mother having primary responsibility domestically and maternally inside the home, Betty Fernand famously dismissed all of that by calling it a domestic concentration camp. That was shocking language in the 1950s and 60s, but it obviously had a very deep effect. A deep effect was to drive through the society an impulse that liberation must indeed happen if the home is a domestic concentration camp. And the logic of second wave feminism became very, very popular in the culture. It began to drive the cultural engines, Hollywood, the academic community, and all the rest of that. So it basically became the dogma. That, that second wave feminism basically said that the problem is not the abuse of these historic structures, but the structures themselves. So it's not, it's not corruptions of the family, or it, it's, it's, not, it's not distortions of, uh, of marriage and the family. It is actually the entire structure of the system that ultimately needs to be overcome. Now, of, of course, the second wave feminists ran into some obvious headwinds. Uh, they ran into political and cultural headwinds, movements pressing back that 
second wave feminism was a radical movement that had radically misread reality, but there was also a pushback from what you might call nature, uh, which is to say that it turns out that there's basically one way to make babies, and that requires relatedness between a male and a female. And even with the displacement of marriage and the redefinition of family, the reality is, and here's something about common grace that shows through, once you have children, they imply a certain responsibility that actually curbs the actual explosion of second-wave feminism, because in one sense, a baby is unimpressed by feminist arguments. Baby says, feed me now, change me now, love me now, even if you call this a concentration camp. At the popular level, it wasn't that most Americans, men or women, became convinced of second-wave feminism. It's that second-wave feminism just shifted the entire spectrum of reality. It, 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 it shifted the perception of the real and the perception of the ideal and the, the kind of life that, uh, that women expected or thought they were supposed to expect and to work for. And eventually, these, these shifts made their way into Christian conversation or into the conversation of Christian churches and denominations. The question eventually reached evangelical shores. And by the time you get to the 1960s and 70s and the mainline, more liberal Protestant denominations, there are calls for the ordination of women to the priesthood or to the ministry. And eventually, there were what were called irregular ordinations, that is, ordinations that weren't authorized but nonetheless took place. And then eventually, you had those churches redefine their standards of ministry. Uh, all of liberal Protestantism, uh, to, uh, to encourage women to be pastors and in some denominations priests and in some of those denominations bishops. And so that logic went forward. We, we need to note that that logic went forward with the same kind of imperative that drove many of those mainline Protestant denominations to make other major theological shifts uh, away from an impulse of biblical authority and towards a responsiveness to culture. And by the way, as you look to those churches, you'll notice that those changes were made largely without much extensive theological or biblical consideration, but rather a surrender to the culture. These issues came to evangelicalism just a little bit later. You could date them perhaps to the, the late 1970s in greater intensity in the 1980s. By the time I arrived as a student at Southern Seminary in 1980, the uh, impulse towards what was called women in ministry was, uh, was already very much underway. It was completely new to me. I'd never heard of it until I arrived here. Uh, but it was an issue of white-hot intensity right here. And to be honest, the white-hot intensity that was taking place right here on that issue was not entirely but largely following the same lines of argument in liberal Protestantism. The, the, the shift in the more evangelical, and that's a broad spectrum, but uh, 
in the more evangelical conversation, there still was the need to try to prove the case by Scripture. And so even when I was assigned in systematic theology here, in the Doctrine of Anthropology, a, a textbook, it was by Paul Jewett, Man as Male and Female, and uh, that, that, that was the argument being made. By the time you get to the late or even the mid-1980s, Southern Baptists are very concerned about this, and in 1984 they pass a resolution stating that uh, pastors should be men. And then when the Baptist Faith and Message was revised in the year 2000 and overwhelmingly adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention, that confession stated that the office of pastor is to be filled only by men as qualified by Scripture. Behind all of that is a lot of what the Germans call Sturm und Drang, an awful lot of controversy and an awful lot of tension and stress. That became one of the major divisive issues in the separation of the Southern Baptist Convention from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and before that, from the Alliance of Baptists. It was, it was a big enough issue that all of those groups had to make a stand one way or the other on whether or not women should serve as pastors, most centrally, and whether or not there was even a biblical differentiation in the roles between men and women in the first place. Here we are in the year 2019, and an interesting question comes to us, and that is, why did this issue reach the status of a confessional issue by the year 2000? The history of this institution has a lot to telling that story. This is one of those dividing line issues. It's a second-order issue, as I often try to explain. There, there are at least three different levels of theological issues, first-order issues, second-order issues, and third-order issues. For decades now, I've tried to call that theological triage as a part of our theological responsibility. First-order issues are doctrines, if compromised, contradict Christianity, and there can be no true Christianity. So the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the, the full deity and full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I, I think a first-order issue, and, and this is something that some people who would even speak of first and second and third-order issues would not say, I firmly believe that a first-order issue is justification by faith alone. Those are issues that define the gospel. If you contradict these doctrines, then you are not teaching, saving, true Christianity. But there are second-order issues that we believe are of great importance, but they're not of the same status. And the classic example of this would be, say, what the Presbyterians and some others call infant baptism. We still recognize gospel-loving Presbyterians as Christians, but we do not recognize them as Baptists. And we have Baptist churches, and they have Presbyterian churches because we differ over, and I'm talking about gospel Presbyterians, our friends in the PCA and beyond. We're talking about people with whom we share a oneness in the gospel and a commitment to the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God, a commitment to justification by faith alone, a commitment to the full measure of Christian orthodoxy. What we don't share is, most importantly, our understanding of 
the ordinance of baptism. And, and so we don't anathematize them and say, they're not believers. We know they're believers, but they're not in our churches because a church is going to have to decide on second-order issues, do we put water on babies or not? And, and so that's a constitutive constitutional issue, and that's what makes a Baptist church a Baptist church. We mean that every single member of a Baptist church shares a common baptism. We believe baptism is revealed in Scripture, biblical baptism, baptism by immersion, a little bit won't do it. And a part of the strength of our ecclesiology is that every single covenant member of a Baptist church has obeyed to receive the covenant sign of that covenant membership, which is baptism. Then there are third order issues that, frankly, you can, you can have division on in a small group without theological risk. Matters of some questions about eschatology, some questions about the origins of the soul, different things like this, where you have some great theological discussions, but it should not be a rupture in communion. You should, you should actually, on those third-order issues, be able to be in the same church and be happily in communion and in covenant. Deciding where issues rank is very important. I'll state without hesitation that the question of whether or not women should serve as pastors is a second-order issue. There are some who believe that women should serve as pastors who otherwise are evangelical Christians who love the Lord and love the Scriptures, but disagree with us on this. Now, as we're going to see, the advocacy of women as pastors, I use the word pastors here just to use the most familiar term amongst us holding the teaching office, that that can be accompanied by, and especially in liberal Protestantism, was indicative of a basic rejection of the Scripture and disregard for biblical authority. But we do need to concede there are some who would claim the same view of Scripture that we hold and the same measure of Christian orthodoxy that we teach who would disagree with us on this issue. But our response would be that the issue then is how faithfully to read the Scriptures, what a faithful reading of Scripture requires of us, what a consistent reading of Scripture requires of us. Feminist liberation theology emerged in such a way as to say the Bible itself is a part of the oppression. The Bible itself bears all the marks of, uh, of patriarchal and and, and, and masculinist prejudice against women. So, on the theological left, the easy thing to do is simply to say, look, the Bible's basically a testimony to what human beings believed about God. The denial there is of the inerrancy and infallibility, verbal inspiration and authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So, freed from Scripture, they are free to say, yes, we know the Bible teaches that, but nobody with any decent intellect would believe that now. As a matter of fact, what we see, they would argue in reading the Scripture, 
is, uh, is the very need for liberation because even continuing vestiges of that kind of understanding of the relatedness of men and women and even an ontological, which is to say that at a basic level of being distinction between men and women, that's what we are overcoming in this liberation project. Phyllis Tribble would refer to the text that she saw as particularly against women as texts of terror. And you can see the parallels in the argument that sets up what those who are pressing the LGBTQ agenda now dismiss as the so-called clobber texts in the Bible concerning human sexuality. Texts of terror, clobber texts, the clear implication is we just need to cut these out of the Bible or at the very least recognize them for the horrible texts that they are. So where do we turn? Well, we turned first to Scripture to… And that should be our impulse. I, I chose Genesis chapter 1 just to make the point that you don't have to look far in Scripture for the direct divine instruction concerning these things. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them in verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll take just a bit of time this morning, but I want us to do an experiment, an exercise in biblical theology, trying to think this through as we ask the questions, what does the world mean? What is our place in the world? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male and female? Is there a divinely revealed order? If so, it'll be to His glory and for our good. What would that order be? How is it rightly to be understood? We start as biblical theology starts. We're going to look at creation, fall, redemption, and, and new creation. But we begin with creation because that's where our theology has to start. As we think about ourselves and the world, we begin with Genesis 1. And what we find here is the image of God. The most profound revelation in Genesis 1 is God's special act of creation, creating human beings, the only creature in His image. That means many things, more than even we can fully imagine or understand. It means at the very least He made us able to know Him, able to be conscious of knowing Him, capable of obeying and disobeying Him. But by the time you have Genesis 1.27 followed by 1.28, it also is clearly functional. There's a it's vocational. There's a responsibility given to us. It is a responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Thus, human life and our existence is not an evolutionary accident. It's God's perfect purpose revealed. And what we notice in the beginning of biblical theology here, in the first movement of biblical theology and creation is, it is without confusion. There, there, there's no confusion in this. In Genesis 1:27 and 28, it is simply stated as a very clear fact. Confusion will, as we know, and fast forward, come as a result of sin. The imago dei is vocational. And the Imago Dei is also the ontological, that is, the most basic level of being reality for both men and women, both male and female. It's not a distinction in that sense. We are together as male and female, told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that takes a male and a female. Then we are also told together to subdue it, to rule, and have dominion. In Genesis 2, an even more elaborate theological description, 
There's an assignment made to Adam prior to the creation of Eve, and that assignment is an assignment of exercising that dominion, even in naming the animals. Whatever Adam named it, whatever name he gave it, that was its name. But you'll recall that by the time you come to the end of that passage, Adam is revealed to have no helper, no complement fitting for him. And thus the Lord put Adam into a deep sleep, and out of Adam's side, out of Adam himself, he made the woman, and he presented her to the man. And the man, having had the responsibility of exercising the dominion before Eve, of naming the animals, now also has the privileged responsibility to name Eve. And the the Scripture makes very clear he named her woman because she was taken out of man. Again, it's clear and confused. It's unconflicted. Man and woman, the same, equally made in the image of God, equally assigned to rule, but different. Different in their biological structure, different in their biological roles, and and, and different in ways that are made even more clear in God's words after the fall. The second great chapter of biblical theology is the fall. God's verdict... And his words of condemnation are clear, and they are bracing and horrifying, and they are differently addressed to the man and the woman. So the theme we're going to see over and over again is same and different. The Bible says over and over again, repeatedly, in every chapter of biblical revelation, in the unfolding story, in our chapters of biblical theology, the theme of same and different comes up again and again and again. We sin thereby by failing to see the same. We sin also by failing to see the different. Just looking at Genesis chapter 3, just begin looking at verse 16, and you'll see the different. They come under the same condemnation, but with different effects. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You shall return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then... In verse 20, Adam names Eve again, calling her Eve by name because she is the mother of all the living. What do we have here? Well, one of the interesting things we have is is an understanding of the fact that even before the fall, there was a distinction in the roles between men and women because it's not that there's a new assignment given to men and women in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. It is there, there is a condemnation on the assignment. The assignment is now going to be accompanied by pain and toil and sweat and we might say tears. There's, a, there's an assignment given to the woman here, even in childbearing, but that's not an assignment that comes by the fall was clearly an assignment 
It was found before the fall in the perfection of the garden, that be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, defined at least that part of her role. And now we're told that it's going to be excruciatingly more difficult. The, the same and the different continue. It should be very interesting and encouraging to us to see how much of this is presented without the slightest embarrassment. This is just an explanation, a revealed explanation in Scripture as to what happened, what it means. And, and as we think about in a fallen world, how we understand these things, well, I mean, the, the Bible's clear in ways that go beyond Genesis that we need to think about. I mean, because after all, it, it, it actually, there are, there are haunting passages that come to us and just remind us that what we're looking at here is more complex than we had ever perhaps imagined. Just consider the fact that when, when you are thinking about the oneness and, 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 or the sameness and the difference, well, it really does bring us to understand that there's difference that is made clear in the Scripture in the Old Testament and then even repeated in the New Testament. Just consider 1 Timothy 2.14, where we are told that Paul's instruction is based, at least in part, on the fact that the woman was first in the fall. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What exactly would you do with that? We don't know, but it, it does show sameness. Same curse, same fall, same sin, but also difference. And it's not only in Genesis, it shows up in the New Testament. After the fall, here's something we need to recognize, and not just about the relatedness of men and women and, and what that means. We need to notice that after the fall, not only is the creation order continued, it is far more essential than we ever would have understood. It, 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 in other words, we only survive after the fall because the creation order continues, and it is literally a matter of life or death. That creation order of human beings made in His image, given this responsibility of dominion, that created order, which is sameness and difference when it comes to men and women, uh, that, that created order, creation order, even when it comes to human reproduction, that creation order when it comes to marriage and the family. And you see this in the Old Testament and its narratives. You see it in the commands and the laws and the statutes that are given to Israel. That creation order is not only continued, that creation order is legislated. That creation order is made even more clear. And, and as you look to the Old Testament, just considering this, you understand that there is same and different. And again, the, the covenant is made with Israel, all of Israel. But the description is often unembarrassingly patriarchal. It's described that way. And then you have the lines of descent through the patriarchs, and, and then you have the fact that it was men who served as the priests and the prophets and the kings, and then you look at the explicit household codes. Here are things to think, keep in mind. In the Old Testament, women are not hardly invisible. They're very present. In the Old Testament, we have not only heroes but heroines, many of them. Women in the Old Testament are not invisible, and they're recognized as having agency and often exercising that agency. There are even times when, and in rare examples, 
women emerge, even in the Old Testament, in a role of national leadership. And even though they're rare, they're there, and they're there for our instruction. And, and yet it continues that the general structure and the specific teachings of the Old Testament would make very clear the continuation of that creation order, same, equally made in the image of God, but different. Different in structure, different in biology, different in role, and different in function. You have to ask a basic question. The Liberation Project says wherever you find this difference, it's just a disguised form of oppression. Well, if that's so, then we can't read the Bible as the verbally inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Then, then, then what we're going to have to do is look at the Bible and say, okay, we have a very problematic text here, and our responsibility is to try to make it less problematic, so we've got to fix it where it's clearly wrong and oppressive. And that's, again, the project undertaken by many. But we're not just living in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we read with anticipation. We're looking for a Messiah. We're yearning for a new covenant. We're looking for a new age. And that third great chapter in biblical theology is redemption, the story of the gospel, the story of God's saving act in Christ, His creation of a new covenant people, the declaration of salvation in Christ's name. All that is contained within the teaching of the gospel comes in this, in this great movement of redemption, which is promised in the Old Testament in very specific form, and then made manifest in what we call the New Testament or the New Covenant, beginning with the gospels and continuing through the book of Acts and the, 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 the epistles and the, even the book of Revelation. What is revealed? Well, again, there is sameness and there is difference. There's, there's sameness in that men and women, just as we are equally in the image of God and we are equally guilty of sinning against a holy God, we're equally in need of a Savior and equal provision is made for us in the perfect redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, from the very beginning of the ministry of Christ, and certainly in the, the ministry of the church, you have had the gospel preached to men and women and boys and girls, believing the gospel is equally addressed to those who are equally sinners in need of a Savior and a Savior who saves men and women to the uttermost. There's sameness, and that, that, that sameness is something we have to keep so very much in mind. We, we also recognize that even in the, the New Covenant age, there are, there are continuations of, well, explicit affirmations of the need to continue that creation order. Starts in Genesis, plan and purpose of God. After the fall, it becomes even more important. And the Christian church has recognized that, has recognized that because it's affirmed in the New Testament, in the household codes of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's repeated in the affirmation of marriage because after all, when, when the question of marriage comes up, Jesus clarifies it more clearly than anyone else when He says it was God's purpose from the beginning that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus said that was God's purpose from the beginning. 
But even an institution like marriage, we understand as Christians that not only that does that institution of marriage, which was declared and created and described in creation before the fall, becomes even more necessary for our survival and, and for the glory of God after the fall, we, we even have larger theological categories for this. Just think of the language in the marriage ceremony of the Book of Common Prayer in which when marriage is described, one of its functions declared in that historic service of Protestant worship is that marriage is a remedy for sin. You don't need marriage as a remedy for sin in the garden, but you do need marriage as a remedy for sin in a fallen world. And, and marriage takes on in the church an even more explicit. Again, this is biblical Christian language. We understand that the relatedness of a man and a woman together, which means mar- there's no statement of same and different like marriage itself. Every time you see a marriage ceremony, it's a declaration of same but different, which is, just a footnote we don't have time to track here, is the impossibility of marrying someone of the same sex. It's, it's just it's the impossibility that we understand from a biblical worldview because the same but different that is written into the very structure of creation can't be replaced by same, same. That's a different message, not irrelevant. The sameness is made clear in the right interpretation of a passage like Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That clearly points to the sameness of our need for Christ and the sameness of the provision made for us as men and women in Christ. And in Christ, in our salvation, there's no longer male or female. There are two different categories of salvation. There is one gospel, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But that doesn't mean that with the affirmation of sameness that the affirmation of difference all of a sudden disappears. It's there very much in the New Testament. We need to note that in the ministry of Jesus, Our Lord honored women, elevated women, recognized women as His followers. We also need to recognize that often amongst His followers, the women were shown to be more perceptive than the men. They had the honor of being the first witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were women who loved Jesus at the foot of the cross. But there was not a woman amongst the 12. They're hardly invisible. They were centrally important. They were models of devotion. But the sameness and the difference are both there. Church order, as it turns out, is a continuation and a sanctification of creation order after the fall. You still have that order that continues. The pattern of same and different continues. Again, clear biblical teachings. Consider the pastoral epistles. And of course, this leads to a, a, a huge issue of biblical authority. Uh, how do we read Paul? And, and if, if you want to argue for women to serve as pastors, then Paul is your primary obstacle. And so, you, uh, you can claim to be, well, we're a red-letter Christian. We, uh, we give priority to the words of Jesus. And, and again, you can 
You can play that game if you're determined to do it, but at least be intellectually honest to say you are now denying the full authority of Scripture. The full authority of Scripture means every word is inspired, every word is fully inspired, and that means that every word comes to us by the Holy Ghost, and that means that the words of the Apostle Paul have the same canonical authority as a citation of a statement from Jesus in the Gospels. Now, no, it's, it's not irrelevant that we know that Jesus said this. It's not irrelevant that Paul said this. But we have a broken understanding that is unfixable if Paul the apostle is in error. And the pastoral epistles are, are just extremely clear. I'm not taking them in order, but in an order of argument. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we don't have time to look at all of these passages, but just consider 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Now, now Paul will repeat the same logic in 1 Timothy, but, or in Ephesians, excuse me. But the, the point I want to make is, if we just have a plain, simple, straightforward understanding of the Scriptures then just looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we, we, we see the, the difference here. We're all in the church. The issue here is head coverings, an issue that would take a lot of time to unpack. But the, the order is what's most important. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, uh, just a couple of chapters over, 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, Paul continuing in this, in this letter, we know as 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian Christians, but by the Holy Ghost to us, as in all the churches, verse 33, after Paul has said, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for if they're not permitted to speak, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That's, that's the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Just reading it like we did, there are obviously some questions we would want to ask. Does it mean that women can't open their mouths in church? It clearly doesn't mean that. We were just blessed by a choir that included so many women who opened their mouths and sang. Does it, does it mean that women can't say anything in church? It must not mean that, just given the wholeness of our interpretation of Scripture and looking to other texts. But it, it clearly does mean that women are not to speak in any way that would be a disputation in the church. And it's, there's a clear difference here. There's, I mean, there's just no denial as much as we saw sameness affirmed in sin and in salvation and image of God, we also see difference here, and it's a difference that's deeply rooted in a comprehensive theological argument, which is why we went to, to 1 Corinthians 11. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an argument that Paul fills out in so many ways. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I want to be honest. If I wrote that, you can disregard that. If I wrote that, you can say, well, there's a theological crank if ever I saw one. But you and I both know I did not write that. Paul wrote that. And if, by the way, you don't believe that Paul wrote that, then you got another problem with biblical authority because then you, you don't know who wrote that, but you're really saying the Holy Spirit didn't write that. But if you hold to the wholeness of the doctrine of Scripture, the Holy Spirit gives this to us for God's glory and for our good, for our binding authority and as command. And as, as you take the, the scriptural authority at full bear and, and you, you look at this and you come to understand, there's a lot of difference here. It's unembarrassed. It's unapologetic. There's a clear distinction, and, and it's, it's absolutely played out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the qualifications for overseers, where the language is just, and we're not surprised now, it doesn't, doesn't shock us in 1 Timothy 3, because after all, we've just read out of 1 Timothy 1 and 2, and you look at this and you think, well, all of a sudden, well, now you've got the overseers described, just to take one point, as the husband of one wife. The problem in our interpretation of these issues is not that there is some kind of biblical inconsistency. The challenge is the fact that there is such remarkable consistency. Our responsibility is to seek to be most faithful and comprehensive and consistent in understanding how all of this is to work in the, in the church, first of all, but also in the home, consider Ephesians chapter 5. And again, you see the same kind of language, and Paul will even repeat the language that we saw in, in 1 Corinthians. In verse 22, wives, submit your, to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. And then here comes Genesis again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We didn't know to see that in Genesis, but, but we do now, and, and the great theme of redemption, we come to understand that even in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and in Genesis 2, there was a picture of a church we didn't know would even come into existence to the glory of God. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, again, there is, there is sameness and there is difference. The, the issue here is that when it comes to the church and when it comes to the home, there are really clear biblical instructions that make 
make obvious there is to be difference. And as everything taught in Scripture, that becomes either a matter of obedience or disobedience or consistency or inconsistency. Ten points. Number one, the pattern is clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament, same and different. Physical bodies, same in so many ways, but different in so many ways. Not an accident, but a part of God's plan. Same and different beyond our bodies is also in the roles and vocations to which men and women are called, even as revealed in creation. It's a pattern, same and different, that continues throughout our understanding of the entirety of Scripture and the experience of the church. Second, very important, this biblical teaching is not about male superiority and female inferiority. To think of the Bible pattern, to think of this sameness and difference in terms of male superiority and female inferiority is to, is to violate the Bible's teaching of the imago dei. The world wants to make everything a matter of superiority and inferiority, but those categories don't fit the biblical revelation. The difference does involve authority. It does involve responsibility. It does even, even revolve within defined relationships, patterns of respect and leadership and submission. But it is not about male superiority. It is not about female inferiority. This shows up in the passage in Ephesians where the responsibility of the husband is not to lord over his wife, but to love her as Christ loved the church. Even the titles that are given in ministry in the New Testament are servant titles, not lordship titles. We, remember, we are evangelical Christians. We don't believe that the church has a human king or human princes, but shepherds, servants, overseers. Both men and women teach in the Bible, but they teach in different roles and in different ways. I mean, just consider Paul's reminder to Timothy of the fact that his mother and his grandmother had faithfully taught him the Scripture. Women do teach. Women should be honored for teaching. But it's a different sphere of teaching, and the Bible is just unambiguous about that. One of the points we need to make is third, the biblical pattern is not about all men being in authority over all women in the society or in the church. That's a misreading of the biblical pattern. It's not that all men are in authority over all women. The particular emphases of the New Testament when it comes to the church are those men who are assigned and God called and recognized as called to the teaching office and to the office of overseer. So it's not just a principle that all women are to submit to all men. There are general patterns of men taking leadership, responsibility, and even protection, treating women with respect and care 
But it's a distortion of a complementarian theology to say that it means either male superiority and female inferiority, or that it's about all men being in authority over all women in the church. In the home, it's husbands and wife. It's father and, and mother and children. It's, it's, they are defined roles. Fourth, this is not about ordination. One of the arguments often here is an, an argument which makes sense in certain circles, and I can respect the argument in those circles that a woman ought to be able to do, that's the way it's often put, or authorized to do everything a non-ordained man can do. The problem with that is we're Baptists and we have no theology of ordination whatsoever. We don't believe that ordination is necessary to fulfill the teaching office Ordination is something that basically came in as a compromise of our theology because insurance companies and retirement plans and, uh, and state agents wanted to know who's a preacher and who's not. Ordination was the mark they chose, but we actually don't believe in ordination. We believe in the, in the, 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 the passing of a authority by the laying on of hands, but we don't believe in any clerisy. We don't believe there's any particular clerical class. We don't believe in a sacrament of ordination. And so ordination doesn't work for us. It's, this is where we have to understand that we believe that function and office are the same thing. In other words, who's the preacher? Well, it's the one who's preaching. That's, that's, a, that's a very easy thing. Baptists ought to be unconfused about this. Fifth, this is an issue of biblical hermeneutics, and it can be an issue of biblical authority. So that, that's an issue that's come up of late. It is at the very least, if there's a controversy over this, it's a matter of hermeneutics, of the proper interpretation of Scripture. And Yes, those who hold to a complementarian position believe that those who hold to an egalitarian position, at the very least, have a faulty and inconsistent biblical hermeneutic, at the least. That is not to say they're not Christians. It's not to say they don't affirm even the inerrancy of Scripture. It's, it, it's not to say they do not teach or preach the gospel. It is to say that this is a legitimate disagreement, and we believe that their hermeneutic is not as faithful as it should be, not as consistent. I said it can be an issue of biblical authority. It certainly was when I arrived here as a student. It was abundantly clear it was an issue of biblical authority because I was told and even given books that were assigned that said that those texts, either Paul didn't write it or Paul was simply speaking as Paul, or this just reflects the, uh, the patriarchal and oppressive uh, you know, distortion of the text, or Paul is repudiated by Jesus, or the creation order, as revealed in Scripture, is a subsequent reading back onto the claims of Genesis and forward, a theological meaning that was invented by Israel and later by others. It can be, and in the mainline Protestant denominations, it virtually always was a repudiation of biblical authority. And I think long-term, it is very difficult for anyone who holds to an egalitarian position to hold to a consistent affirmation of biblical authority. I think over time, that becomes more and more difficult. Fifth, actually sixth now, in the Southern Baptist Convention context, Southern Baptists recognized increasingly that this question is a second-order issue that is constitutive of communion. What does that mean? It means we actually define 
confessionally this pattern within the home in the Baptist faith and message and within the church in the Baptist faith and message, not with extensive detail, but with a very clear statement that the office of pastor is limited, restricted to men as qualified by Scripture. So that's what does that tell us? It tells us that Southern Baptists have said that our cooperation and our unity as a denomination is predicated upon that affirmation. And that means that our seminaries, uh, starting here earlier in 1993, because we added it to our confessional expectations in 1993, but the entire Southern Baptist Convention from 2000 on, all of its entities are now accountable to a confession of faith which very clearly makes this distinction. And the, the, the sameness and the difference are both affirmed. It's a second-order issue, but second-order issue is how you have congregations. It's a second-order issue, but second-order issue are how you have denominations. This is, there's a reason why they're Presbyterians and they're Baptists. It's, a, it's at the heart amongst gospel-loving people, a second-order issue, but you're going to do something with the baby or you're not, and your congregation is going to be established in order to consistently work that out. The same thing's true with the Southern Baptist Convention. I believe that it is one of the most important clarifications that Southern Baptists made, especially over the course of the last, the last generation. Seventh. The biblical revelation of what it means same and different is clear in the passages concerning the home and the church, less clear when it comes to the larger society, which is to say, it gets back to the fact that the Bible's specific instructions, especially given our New Testament understanding the Bible's explicit instructions are how to order the home and how to order the church, much less specificity about how to order the culture. Now, I believe, this is my argument, and it would be the mainstream argument of Orthodox Christianity throughout the ages, that will be that the creation order continues, and in the creation order, the natural order of things is that those leaders would be men, and I still think you see much of that in, in reflected in even electoral decisions today, but I do not want to be a hypocrite, and I will tell you that if I hypothetically had a choice between voting for Bernie Sanders or Margaret Thatcher, I would vote for Margaret Thatcher in what Adrian Rogers called a skinny New York minute. <laughs> and I would feel no compromise of my theology. It is less clear in society could, should, can women fulfill this role or that role in society, we are not operating there from clear biblical texts, but from biblical reasoning. And we need to confess to one another that we do not believe the world is accountable to the same very clear biblical teachings that are clear in the New Testament concerning the home and the church. Eighth, it is the responsibility of the church to call it the gifts of all believers in biblical order. 
And, and, and those last words are really important, in biblical order, which is to say, according to a biblical order, we need to give attention to calling out the gifts that the Holy Spirit has invested for the church and in the church in both men and women, in full measure. Where you find a healthy church, you should find the giftedness of all men and the giftedness of all women called out in biblical order. And that doesn't mean violating that order, but it does mean calling out that giftedness as a display of the glory of God in the church. Now, under this point eight, and this is where, this is where things get sometimes a little more sensitive to talk about. One of the things heard from some women in wonderful gospel churches uh, is the statement, there must be more than this. I've heard several women raise this with me, saying, what, what does that mean? There must be more than this. Well, I'll simply say, here's the thing. In many churches where the right and proper, in biblical order, gifts of women are not called out, there must be more than this. Absolutely where women are not fully dignified and their, their roles and responsibilities and, and, and their spiritual gifts are not fully called out and honored, then of course there must be more than this. But that cannot mean there must be more than this if this is the biblical order revealed in Scripture. That's, that's the problem. We, we, we can't happily receive the question, there must be more than this, if the, this is what's revealed in Scripture. A little sub-note on this. One of the questions that now comes, and I answered this in a video some time back, can or ought a woman to preach on Sunday? And I, I think the answer is, given the biblical order that is given here, no. I, I, I don't think that that is consistent. I, I think that that is a confusion because the teaching office is inseparable from the, from the, the, the function, and again, the, the, we believe that the that the, the function and the office are one. Now, I, I'm not saying that if that happens in isolated examples that that church is necessarily intentionally denying Scripture, but a part of our responsibility to encourage one another to consistency. And so, that's what I think we, we do. We encourage one another to consistency. We don't have a denominational police force or an FBI to go out finding churches where some woman may have done something or some church may have authorized something that we believe to be not fully consistent. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about this. It's a public issue in the Southern Baptist Convention that we ought to engage with a full measure of both respect and conviction. We can do that. That's, that's what we do. But I also want to affirm that I believe there is a vast consensus among Southern Baptists. I'm so confident of that that I'm really confident that on any given Sunday, you take a snapshot of all, the, of all the preachers who are preaching in Southern Baptist churches on a Sunday, I think it's going to be a revelation overwhelmingly of proper order, and I hope of proper preaching. Ninth. And I apologize for this length, but I advertised in advance it might be necessary. Ninth, women deserve the deepest theological and biblical education. We, we gladly receive women into our PhD program. 
I think women fulfilling the teaching responsibility given to women in the church and honoring that and calling out that, I want women to receive the deepest biblical education. I think women deserve and need the deepest theological studies. So that's why we gladly receive women into the degree programs leading to degrees in biblical studies, degrees in theological studies, degrees in preparation for many phases of ministry other than the pastoral calling, and, uh, and even in specialized academic pursuits. This is one of the reasons why we as an institution do not have a women's studies program. We don't. It's because I don't believe in right biblical order we would separate women out to study women. I want to encourage women to study God and the Bible and theology. And to the glory of God, many hundreds of them are right here. And that means that every male student in this seminary owes every female student in this seminary the utmost respect. And seeing them as those who are also called to the glory of God to an important role in the church and an important role in the classroom here as well, learning together. Now, tenth, and I save this for the last, not because it is the last consideration, but because as a matter of emphasis, I want to leave it as final words in your ears. We have to face the question, which is now raised very much in public, as to whether or not complementarianism is a cause of the abuse of women girls. And here's where you need to hear me say, it can be, and it sometimes is. Sinful men will use anything in vanity and in anger, in sin of every form. Sinful men will distort anything and will take advantage of any argument that seems to their advantage even to the abuse of women. The responsibility is for us to recognize that complementarianism, which we believe to be the glorious revelation of God for our good and for His glory in the church and in the home, we need to recognize that if that is distorted into male superiority and if it is then distorted through a corrupted understanding then you will have a situation in which it is not only hypothetically possible, but it has been true that some men have cited complementarian doctrine as an excuse for lording over their wives rather than leading and serving, and even taking advantage to the point of abuse and denying that abuse is abuse. This is where we need to be grown-ups here and recognize we have to take responsibility for our doctrine. We have to take responsibility for our doctrine in recognizing that it can be abused in such a way that women are hurt and that they are abused and that they are not advocated for and they are not believed. There is a real sex abuse crisis in our midst. It is our responsibility to make certain 
not only that we hold to biblical doctrine, that's non-negotiable, but that our doctrine is fully biblical and demonstrates the spirit of Christ and the fullness of what the Bible calls us to. J.D. Greer is the president of our convention and the Southern Baptist Convention and leadership, I think, have responded appropriately, if yet incompletely. We're, we're learning as we go uh, to this challenge. We need to recognize that we have sinned against women when we have allowed complementarianism to be presented in a way that implies male superiority and often leads in sinfulness to male tyranny and terror and sin. We need to take responsibility for the fact that we as, as a denomination, as churches, have often failed to hear the cries of women who have spoken of their abuse, and we bear responsibility for a failure to deal adequately, Christianly, responsively, as husbands who love their wives, as Christ loves the church, should respond to the cries of any woman. And thus, we have work to do. But it's work to do. We're not left without divine revelation. We understand that rightly understood complementarianism produces husbands who love their wives as Christ loves the church, and they love their wives as they love their own bodies. We understand that, yes, complementarianism also is represented in women living out, even with the word submission that is used repeatedly in Scripture without any embarrassment, and learning, learning to do that in joy. And, and there is such a demonstration of God's love and God's glory in the rightly ordered home and the rightly ordered marriage and the rightly ordered church. But we've received a wake-up call that we be very aware that there are those who will use any doctrine to their sinful advantage. So, it's incumbent upon us to clarify and to testify and to advocate. So, do I believe that complementarianism leads to the abuse of women? I will tell you, yes, I believe that it can and it has. But that's not the source of the problem. The source of the problem is human sinfulness, pride and arrogance. And yes, there are patterns of male pride and male arrogance and male terror that haunt us. But I believe the embrace of the fullness of what God has revealed in Scripture is actually the only way to find healing and hope and accountability in gospel churches that are rightly ordered and women are rightly honored, and in gospel homes where husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. I know what some of you are thinking. There are four movements to biblical theology, and the last is eschatology or new creation. I have very little to say because very little is revealed on this question. We do know this. There will be no preaching. There will be no preaching office in the kingdom of Christ because we are told in Scripture that Christ will be our preacher. He's going to be our teacher. We don't need a human teacher, so the teaching office disappears. We're told that there's no marriage or giving in marriage. There, there's no physical reproduction in heaven. And so I don't know exactly what all that means, but I do know this. It's going to be even better than the garden 
because it will be perfected in Christ. So I'm going to wait for that. But right now, we've got work to do to the glory of God. May we do that work faithfully, honorably to God. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have not left us without a witness, wondering what it is we are to think and how it is we are to live. Father, I pray that these words this morning will be clarifying to me and to all of us. I pray that your words and our reflections on those words will make us more faithful. Father, I pray that this extended time this morning will be strengthening to this school and beyond and in our hearts. I thank you for the opportunity and pray to be faithful in the stewardship. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.